Hey everyone, it is great to be back in the booth. Uh, I've been busy with work, so I haven't been able to release one of these in quite some time, as you may have noticed. Uh, but now I'm coming back with a vengeance, um, and I have a few great ones lined up over the next few weeks and beyond. Please, 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 if you feel so inclined, please rate and review the podcast. It makes a huge difference for me, um, and it's great to get some feedback that I can implement and make it better, hopefully. <laughs> um, uh, we have a great podcast today with Eric Ryan, who has founded two wildly successful companies and is on to his third. Um, he was wonderful. Uh, I got to go down to his office and talk to him there. So I hope you enjoy it. Uh, again, great to be back. Thank you so much for listening. You are all the greatest. Love you, love you, love you. Rate, subscribe. And we could not find a brand that we wanted to invite into the program that we thought resonated with, with that, that audience. So I just went and looked at the aisle and saw that people were like literally stressing out trying to do something that's healthy for them. You need to have a PhD to understand that aisle. Really uninspiring products, uh, brands that lack any sort of emotion. And so that was a clue dig here. Welcome everybody to the Making the Brand podcast. My name is Billy Draper. I work in early stage venture capital. And on this show, we're gonna be talking about brands. We'll talk to founders and leaders of growing consumer companies that are finding ways to stand out, differentiate, and delight their customers. On today's show, we have Eric Ryan, co-founder of Method, Ollie, and Welly. He teaches us about choosing consumer markets to transform. Okay, so today on the show, we have a very special guest. This is really fun because I get to do it from the Ollie offices. Um, but I have Eric Ryan on the show, who is the founder of Method. Uh, he's the founder of Ollie. And most recently, he's the founder of Welly. Um, these are three massively successful companies. Uh, this is really exciting for me because normally I'm interviewing uh, companies where they're sort of on a high growth trajectory. Rarely do I interview entrepreneurs who have done it and are doing it again and now doing it a third time. So, Eric, I hugely appreciate the time. Yeah, thanks for having me and welcome to Camp Ali. Thank you. Um, so I definitely want to talk about Welly, uh, but first I want to get into your history of just creating sort of massively successful companies, uh, specifically successful brands. Um, can you take me through a little bit of the progression? How did you... Uh, in the early 2000s, I think it was, maybe 2000 yeah, or the, 2001. The turn of the century. Which turn is, of the century. Just now starting to seem like a long time ago. How did you decide to start a soap company? So my background was in advertising, and I did what was called account planning, which is essentially the strategy role that sits in between understanding the consumer and then trying to translate those insights into great creative and working with designers and creatives. So I tend to look at everything through the lens of a consumer um, with uh, you know, a lot of the idea of how do you build brands and apply creativity and design. And I always admired Richard Branson for having a model. And I was working in advertising in London, and that's the first place I started thinking more and more about about packaged goods. And I loved how he would take these really unsexy categories and he would apply an entertainment model. And so I was looking for this idea of like big spaces that the way I articulated at the time had missed a cultural shift, meaning it was a big category. People were already making money. And even if it was a crowded space, that was okay as long as there was a big cultural shift that the category was missing. 
And when we started Method, I was bouncing around looking at a lot of different categories and this idea of like, I'm going to start with a space. And I started just looking at that cleaning out because it was so big, but it was a sea of sameness. So that was kind of the clue of dig here. And then as I got into it, we figured out there was not, you know, first I thought of this idea of that these products that you care for your home should be more of an expression of your home. So the first cultural shift was this idea of lifestyling of the home, which was really taking off 20 years ago. And then when Adam and I teamed up and he came um, with a background in sustainability and chemical engineering, we also realized like, like, wow, like cleaning is a really dirty industry. You pollute when you clean, use poison to make your home healthier. And if we were ever lucky enough to be successful, we saw we leave a legacy of harm and the number of common child household poisonings that occur every year from these products. So we realized there was a second cultural shift, which is this idea of sustainability. And so we put together high design and deep sustainability to drive the brand off of these these two trends. And that was the model that got us kicked off with Method. What was the first product? So the first product was a line of surface cleaners. So we had a glass, a shower, and an all-purpose surface cleaner. It was very DIY. Uh, Adam did a lot of the formulation himself through some trial and error. We literally bottled the first line at home labeled it and um, put it into a handful of barrier stores as a test market and just kind of built it case by case. Where were you? You were based in San Francisco? Yeah, we were based in, in San Francisco. So two guys in a really dirty flat with six other friends. It's not the Martha Stewart story by any means. What neighborhood? So we were at Pine and Golf, yeah, um, which was renamed Lower Pacific Heights. Yeah, it, all the neighborhoods <laughs> keep getting renamed. Uh, and how did you meet Adam? So Adam and I were childhood friends. We grew up sailing together. Okay. And uh, actually, we were just uh, at a kite surfing trip together this weekend. So we, we both have a real passion for water. Okay, so you have a 12-year and beyond life cycle for Method. You're building this thing. How long was it uh, until sort of things started to pick up? Uh, did, or maybe when the Target deal happened or maybe when you got your first big retailer, was that year three or year seven? Yeah, I mean, the whole thing was pretty fast, but we followed a very, you know, kind of methodical uh, approach, which was the whole idea of constantly de-risking and as a theme in everything we do. So the first thing we did was, you know, it, again, so much about being an entrepreneur, the mechanics are not hard. It's like overcoming the your own sense of ego. And it's really not about putting financial risk, but just personal reputation risk. And so the first thing we did was we created this concept, put it in a book, and gave it to the 20 smartest people we knew and told them to shoot holes in it. Tell us why this won't work. And when that came back where nobody could find a viable reason, that was a little bit of a confidence boost. And then we created our first prototypes. We gave it to friends. They liked it. That was a little bit more of a confidence boost. We put it in these first 30 stores, hand-delivered it. It started selling. That was another confidence boost. And then from there, the way we scaled it, so year one was very regional. Year two, or local, I should say, uh, San Francisco. Year two was regional, so we went to the West Coast grocery chains um, like Ralph's and QFC up in Seattle, sold it in their warehouse direct model. Uh, so that was year two. And then year three, we went and pitched Target, which allowed us to go national with it. And then, well, there was a lot of time between year three. Didn't, was it a, when did you sell the business? We, so SC Johnson uh, fully acquired the business uh, two years ago now. Two years ago. Wasn't there an initial acquisition for uh, before that? Yeah, we did a deal with the, uh, the Sorison family out of the UK who owned uh, the eCover brand. Yeah. And we brought those two brands together. It allowed us to cash out a lot of our investors. 
and then we use that to build our plant and scale it to the next level. Got it. Um, that's incredible. And I'm sure in 2000, 2001, everyone around you was starting tech businesses. We got we had friends who were bragging about how they raised forty million on a forty page uh, PowerPoint presentation, a yeah, million per page. It's a scary. We were world. going to these lavish, you know, launch parties, which is like now you look at it, it's like the stupidest thing you could do is spend those precious dollars, few dollars, right? And um, I think everybody laughed at us first that it wasn't tech, and then after the first dot com crash, when we were raising capital, a lot of people were not deploying capital because they had not diversified. So did you did you end up raising outside capital for Method? We did. We ended up raising about a total of twenty million over the years. And uh, really, Steve Simon and Herb Simon uh, and Tim Kugel, some really amazing angels who um, were our very first investment that got us going. Okay, so Method, you're in this sort of soap industry, uh, you know, wildly successful business. I think I read, you know, hundred or hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue per year. How did you then decide to sort of hop skip into the, the chewable vitamins category? You know, it was it wasn't an easy decision because again, kind of going back to that, so much of the the challenge of being an entrepreneur is much more about putting your personal reputation at risk and your own sense of ego. And I was coming to the realization that I would be incredibly dissatisfied if I didn't do another startup because with method, we learned so much and we made so many stupid mistakes and I wanted the opportunity to apply those mistakes and that learning into, you know, blank sheet of paper again. But at the same time, I was scared. I was like, okay, if venture number two fails, then I was a one hit wonder mm-hmm. and got, got lucky. And you do, you think a lot, like, okay, did I just get lucky or am I actually good? I don't, you know. But think about the fact that most people are zero hit wonders. So you had the first, which everyone strives for, a huge success by any metric. And then you're, you, you're in your, what, early 40s or late 30s, or I don't know how old you are, but you basically are like, okay, yeah, I'm gonna do that again. And you get to take all the, I imagine, inefficiencies, mistakes, everything, and just squeeze that process. And did, so how did you, but how did you decide on the vitamin category specifically? So followed the exact same model. And the, what happened here this time, we we're helping Target create the Made to Matter program. And as we were developing that program, we were looking at brands that really aligned with a millennial mom and had a sense of lifestyle to them. And these were all better for you brands. And so, you know, within the wellness space, the supplement nutrition aisle is a pretty important aisle. And we could not find a brand that we wanted to invite into the program that we thought resonated with, with that, that audience. And so I just went and looked at the aisle and saw that people were like literally stressing out trying to choose something that's healthy for them. You need to have a PhD to understand that aisle. Really uninspiring products, uh, brands that lack any sort of emotion. And so that was a clue dig here. And I just followed the same model, which is when I picked the space and it had what I was looking for as far as big, you know, competitive, but big, giant, multi-billion dollar category. And um, realized that this time the cultural shift was millennials entering into this category. And each generation has a different relationship to health. And with millennials, so much of their relationship to health is integrating it into their lifestyle. So that became the big idea. And you, what were the sort of core learnings from method that you took with you when you were starting Ollie? It was a lot of the same thing, and I should say too, within Ali, 
you know, I started playing with this idea, and then I had a one-on-one um, with a senior executive at Target during a, uh, one of our check-ins. And so I asked him, I was like, take a look at this and give me a gut check. Do you think there's something here? And it was like, you know, a few slides on my uh, iPad. And he just looks at me, he's like, how soon could you do this? And so that was like what lit the fuse. I'm like, all right, I guess. Because I, I didn't want to leave Method. I loved it. And, you know, we built this culture that we really enjoyed. But at the same time, then I was like, okay, we have an opportunity to go do this again. And that gave me the confidence to go do it. And so as far as the learnings, it, you know, we really have followed a lot of the exact same playbook in the belief that everything starts with culture. And from culture, the products are nothing more than a souvenir. And if you get the culture right, you get the products right, sales and marketing get a lot easier. So the reason we're here in the Presidio, we used to be, we outgrew it, and we're actually moving out of this space in a couple of weeks. We used to be up in the old military barracks um, on the lawn in, on the parade ground there. And um, we wanted a space that reflected wellness, and we want to make that distance as little as possible of who we are and who we create, serve. Um, and we want people who really are inspired by wellness and uh, being outdoors and active. And so that's why we decided to set the office up here in a national park. So again, and you can kind of feel it when you're here, like everything starts with culture. And then similar to method, it's about winning on a great product experience. Not a single attribute, but a lot of ways how we apply design and efficacy and flavor this time instead of fragrance and just creating a better experience. And then if you got a great culture and a great product, sales, marketing, everything else just gets so much easier. How did you did you did you pick a co-founder for Ollie or are you were you the solo founder? No, I did pick a co-founder because I was still what I did is I slowly stepped out of method down to 75, yeah. 50, 25. And so I needed a partner who could also kind of help because it was really important for me to stick the landing at method and make right. sure that that brand was headed in the right direction. And how you talk about culture, how do you. Are there tangible ways that you can sort of build your culture in the right direction in the you know the first month or the first nine months? What are the things you're thinking about when you're bringing people on, uh, when you're talking about how we present ourselves, when you're talking about how this brand is going to present itself? What what are the the sort of core attributes you think of when you think of your culture? Yeah, in, it's a great question because you have to think about it very much as it's a journey. And the last thing you want to do is be too heavy-handed or too top-down in the beginning of defining. You don't want to be Moses coming down with your Ten Commandments and like, this is our culture. I think naturally, you end, the culture does naturally reflect the founders because you end up hiring people who have similar personalities and vibes that you like to be around. And so some of it just naturally comes from, and you can look at a lot of companies and how they do very much reflect, reflect the personality of their founders. For me, the way we would approach it in the beginning is like, first of all, make sure everybody understood like culture is important. And I think just by letting people know that culture is important, that right there allows people to really engage and participate and find ways to make it a great culture just just by knowing that we're all aligned, like this matters. Um, so for me in those very beginning, it's really about planting the seeds of the culture and you don't know how exactly it's gonna grow. So again, going back to office space, creating a space that starts to give a sense of culture that Winston Churchill quote of we shape our buildings, they shape us. I think the same is true for office design. The first few people you hire, making sure that they're not only a great you know, fit from experience and skill set, but also people you truly admire and want to be around. And just simple things like we do the, the plane test, like do I want to sit next to this person for five hours on a flight right. or do I want to be on a different flight? Yeah. 
And then we use the homework assignment right up front, which is kind of a live audition. Um, when we're about to hire somebody, they're given three questions a week before, and they have to come in and present to the group. And it allows us to really prototype culture and chemistry. And then everything else, you know, the values we try not to define until a couple years into it. Uh, you treat everything as wet cement. And like, I could never have guessed that, you know, we call our office here Camp Ali. I could never in a million years guess camp would be like a theme for a wellness company. Um, or a bear would become our little internal mascot. And it's just a lot of watching how the, the culture naturally comes to life and then doubling down on the things that you think are interesting. So you go in to a grocery store and you figure out sort of what industry is stodgy or hasn't been changed in a long time, sort of hasn't caught up or, or kept up. Um, how do you name these companies? How did you name Method? God, luck. It's um, a great name. Thanks. It's, uh, I've never come up with any of the names myself. What I try to do is kind of guide us on what we want the name to represent. So our whole approach is like, uh, so I'll use the example of method. So like with method, we wanted a product that represented a new approach. And then we try to come up with a jumping off word, which is like the bad example. And so we use technique as our jumping off word because the thought of like when you're in a gym and a good technique gives you power without force. And that's how we wanted these products since they're gonna be natural that they would work. They would just have a good technique to them versus just like the brute, you know, power scorch earth we're going to kill everything in your home and adam and i were brushing our teeth at the same time because again we lived in this very dirty flat with six guys and he just looks he's like how about method and i was like yeah i was like that's it like that was the only you word we ever it. had i'm like done of course we told the lawyers we want to own the trademark method and they're like that's the most generic word you'll never own right. that it's like all right so we went back and tried to come up with other names and we we were getting nowhere that it was anywhere close to method so I, w I took the lawyer out for a drink and I said, look, if you felt that this name would increase the probability of success, given the downside of being able to actually own it, what would you do? He's like, I'd go for it. I was like, why do you not give me the advice when I pay for it? Right. Uh, so we went for it. Two years later, we got the trademark. Um, Ali was similar. We wanted a name that was very friendly. And because we were like, what is the category missing? Everything's very pseudoscience, like Centrum, or very folksy, like Nature's Garden. Right. And so we wanted a name that was, um, and a friend of mine who's creative director at Apple, Alan Dye, uh, we were going down to watch the U.S. Open together in the car, and he had, he's like, how about Ollie? I was like, yep, that's it. Yeah, <laughs> same moment. And then Welly, Anthony Sperduti came up with that name. We wanted a name that represented health, but in a very friendly way, different than Ollie, but, and we didn't mean for Ollie and Welly to be like the same, so similar, but. We yeah, Welly might be the most fitting of all. It's sort of like you're getting well, you're fixing yourself. I don't know. It, it sounds very child-friendly, but also approachable. Um, and another thing along the same lines, one of the things that was differentiated, I always think about Red Bull for this too. One of the things that was differentiated about Method was the packaging. Same with Ollie. Same with Welly to, to even a, a oh, greater yeah. degree. So how, how much of that, how much of your initial thought process is is packaging and then i'll i have a follow-up but I, I guess to add to that when you were pitching ollie to the person at target did you already have your packaging in mind were you showing he or she a, a, sort of what the packaging would look like or were they just excited about the concept of sort of a more approachable vitamin yeah i mean so much of the model the way i work is engage creative really up front 
And so that way you can help people really visualize it and make it look more tangible, more real than it really is. I mean, it's a smoke screen when I was showing it. It was a few slides, but it looked, right. looked pretty well thought out. Staging the, the apartment makes it a lot easier to sell, right? Absolutely. And I don't, I, don't think of pa- I don't really think of packaging as packaging. I just think of it as product design. And so if you look at each of the brands, we really designed it for not – packaging is really about, I think, how it – looks at shelf and it's really about buy me and we really try to design for in-home use which is live with me and with method the big idea and we want something that's very iconic um, so method the big idea was really to take from personal care and housewares so everything is shaped like vases so it's meant like a vase as a houseware item to live in your home and the you know the colors and what we sold from personal care that's much more for the friendliness that hey this is also safe for you and for your family with Ollie, we wanted it to feel like a jar, and we went square, one, because everybody was round, so we had to do go square, but we were really trying to steal from the beauty aisle, and that's why we did the big white cap with a large logo, and we wanted it to feel very home at the beauty aisle, but disrupting in the, the ninja aisle, and so we ended up with a square jar we thought was iconic to make the cap really part of the mark, but also the nice thing with square jars is it merchandises really well, it's got a little bit more of a seriousness to it, it's differentiated. Um, but it's like a, I mean, you could take that off and you could store sugar in it, you know, like right. it's, it's designed to look more like a product, not a package. And with Welly, the big idea was to bring tin back to the category, which is how it used to come. And so we wanted to design these tin canisters that would have a second life. Like it would have my kids, I find them, I find the bandages dumped out cause they stole the, to put little Lego men or something. Yeah. Um, and the idea, again, it doesn't feel like packaging. It feels like a product in your home. Um, yeah, that's, a, I, that's interesting because I think it's so powerful to just be different. And now it's getting so hard to be different because everyone's realized, oh, let's do different packaging. Let's do something, you know, bigger lettering. Let's make it pop. Let's make it bright colors. So people are starting to sort of hack what we used to see as ever, sameness. And now you have to get even more creative with your packaging. And now people care about you know, how much plastic you use, how recyclable the packaging is. Um, how, uh, so one, another thing is a lot of entrepreneurs in today's world are, are, are starting these brands um, and immediately going and buying Instagram ads. So going direct to consumer versus uh, through the conventional sort of retail method. How, how do you think about that? I think, I think most of your businesses have been through conventional big box retail stores. Uh, are you uh, in favor of? Are you skeptical of? How do you think about the direct-to-consumer channel versus the, the in-store retail channel? It's a, it's a great question, and it's evolving, I think, by the day right sure. now. So we're all learning. We're all paying attention to it. The themes that – I think it's also very different by category. Um, definitely the th- one major theme that's emerging is it is really hard to build a profitable D2C e-commerce brand. And the consumer, I don't think, discriminates by, oh, that's a D2C brand, that's an in-store brand. They're like, that's that cool Quip toothbrush that I saw in my Instagram feed, and it's now available at Target. Right. So I think the model, one model that's starting to evolve is that there's very few businesses that can build a true digital online presence only and build a profitable, sustainable business. Um. So what we're seeing is a lot of, of brands launching on D2C, use, especially if they can't get access to retailers, using that to build a following, 
really work through the brand product proposition, get that dialed in, and then take it into brick and mortar uh, retailing and figuring out how those those coexist. So I think one way that D2C and e-commerce has just really opened up the door for the number of new brands. I mean, it wasn't that long ago. It was brutal to get distribution. Slotting fees were always a challenge to overcome for a startup. The cost of advertising and marketing, like it was, you know, there's a reason why these big CPG companies have dominated for decades and why it's now finally being flipped around. So the barriers to entry have never been lower and easier, but at the same time, the noise has gotten definitely uh, a lot bigger. And then I think you've got a lot of, you know, tech. The big thing, too, that's really interesting is how much, you know, tech money has gone in and it's still defying the laws of gravity of like CPG exits and multiples. And I don't see that really changing. Um, so you've got a lot of brands that, like, strategically, they can never be sold for their last round. They're not great IPO candidates, and it's you know, it's really hard to find a CPG company that raised a lot of capital and had a successful successful ex- exit. There were the razor companies. And Harry's is great, but those yeah. Uh, native deodorant. Yeah. I guess that they didn't raise a lot of capital. So you're right. Yeah, there is a there is sort of you have to be reasonable in your expectations as you grow. You can't grow beyond the market size or grow beyond what you think your chunk of the market will be. And Jeff and Andy, they I mean they're brilliant, good friends and what they did with Harry's is is pretty tremendous, but again, that was a great business model. They bought a plant so they vertically integrated, so they had solid economics. And then they also did a great job of building their online community and their D2C at the same time while succeeding at Target and Walmart and then now launching Flamingo, so a second brand off of it. So they really did a great job of mixing old and new kind of CPG roles into what was and has been and I think will continue to be a huge success. And did you raise outside capital for Ollie? We did. Not not a pretty small amount. We were able to break even in year one and we were profitable ever since. So wow. we did a Series A raise. I did the seed myself and then we did a uh, Obvious Ventures led it and... The rule I had was everybody who invested had to be either a current or former operator. So even like obvious James Joaquin and the team there, like they're all former operators. Uh, so they understand what we're trying to do day to day. And uh, we never had to do a B, which was nice. And what about for Welly? So for Welly, we same thing. We raised a uh, Series A, kind of same same group. Obvious and I led the round. And then we've got a, uh, a group of entrepreneurs who have all invested into it. So... Blake from Tom's Shoes, um, uh, Andy and Jeff from, from Harry's, et cetera. When did you start Welly? Welly launched in April. So we literally announced the deal with Unilever and Ali, and Welly launched at Target the exact same week. It was, wow. It was a big week. Yeah. Do you work, <laughs> does the Welly team work out of the Ali office as well? No, they're based in Minneapolis. So oh, awesome. I found a, um, uh, partner, uh, Doug Stukenborg, who he is the CEO. He's co-founder, but he is the CEO. He runs all the day-to-day yeah. operations with the business. Um, I really help with recruiting, uh, shaping, and uh, the, the, the the strategy. I'm, I get involved with uh, some of the bigger product development creative moments. Um, but now he and the team there, they run it day-to-day. And we want it. San Francisco's gotten so competitive. Yeah. So it's like vacationing off season, uh, being in Minneapolis, just great talent. Yeah. Not a lot of startups competing for that talent. Right. And, uh, office space is a lot easier to find. And you're right up snugly with target, which is 
probably not a coincidence. And the weather's crappy most of the year, so. Uh, but when it's nice, it's really, like really hard. nice. When it's nice, it's beautiful. <laughs> totally. I was in Minneapolis a year ago for a day, and it was a perfect day. And I was like, why doesn't everyone live here? I lived there for a couple of years. Uh, it's a great, great town. So we're thrilled. And there's a there's really a strong emerging um, healthcare industry there. You've got the Mayo Clinic. So it makes a lot of sense for Welly to be there. And do you, so, okay, you sold the first one to SC Johnson, next one to Unilever. Are you going for the trifecta on this one? Or are you, are you just going to let this one kind of grow forever? You know, we, we try never to start a business with the end in mind. And we never want to build a business just for the purpose of flipping it. Good idea. And there's a lot of startups out there that do that. And you can also see by a lot of recent acquisitions how post-acquisition that brand and that business started to struggle. Right. So and you can see kind of looking out the window, like we're here to build deep capabilities, really build solid leadership teams that are highly sustainable, regardless of who has ownership of the company. And at the end of the day, like I want my kids, my grandchildren to be proud of these brands. And so we really try to set the business and the brand up for a long, sustainable future, and then choose the right partner. Um, if we get to that stage, you know, no reason we couldn't IPO one of these or right. just keep keep growing it. But yeah, <laughs> or use the same brand to to sort of take over a different shelf and take over maybe start to edge into a different category or a different product line. Um, do you spend most of your time still day to day with Ollie? Yes. Yeah. Okay. I'm a, so Jerry, our COO, he and I really work closely as a team. He took over as CEO. Yeah. So that's freed me up to help Unilever with some strategic initiatives, but also launching uh, Ollie into Asia. Awesome. Um, and then I split some of my time on Willie. And how do you think about competition? So you you were a newcomer in in all three of these categories. They all have billion dollar brands sort of that have been settled for 50 plus years. Um, did you... Do you have any policy when it comes to competition? Do you do you put blinders on and just sort of build how you see things to be or get a team that's going to build how you collectively see things to be? Or or are you sort of looking over your shoulder at all? You know, it's 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 good to be paranoid and it's a balance. Like you don't want the gravitational pull of the category to start to shape your, your strategy. And to really build a great transformational brand and business, you do have to be disruptive. And so we always try to ground that disruption in an insight, kind of going back to this idea of cultural shifts. What is the macro trend? What is the insight? So with each brand, you can see there's a very clear insight. And I get a little bit of imposter syndrome, too. I was like, well, what do I know about taking on Band-Aid? What do I know about taking on? Sometimes you know? it's an advantage. <laughs> like... Like, what gives me the right to sell a sleeping aid? Right. Um, and exactly, uh, categories are typically disrupted by people who are, are naive because they don't see some of the fundamental truths that hold others back. But also, it forces us to be more and more grounded into that consumer point of view and look at it through a consumer lens. And so what I think is super important is to always stay true to that insight and execute it well against it and pay attention to competition, but do not let them shift your strategy by, by in any way of ever reacting to them. And I, and I think when you're the, the David versus the Goliath, you have a lot more, there's no one to look at, right? If you're doing it totally differently, which you are, uh, they're looking at you and they probably don't notice you for a while. That's right. And the, tri the trick is too, is when you go in and disrupt a category, you need to do it in a way where you can't be reached through line extension. You know, with you want to create 
a brand and a proposition where the only way somebody can truly come after you is by creating a new brand. And then what you have to watch is what I call the brand, you know, the basically the sandwich squeeze where underneath you the copycats start to come. Sure. And then above you, the legacy players start to co-op your strategy. Sure. So you need to create something that has some sense of moat around it. Mm-hmm. I think you're seeing this with Halo Top ice cream right now, right? It's like all the people, they were new formula, low calorie, selling through the roof. Uh, I had them on the podcast, actually, 2016, 2017, growing like crazy. And now they're all these, the big brands are offering low calorie options. The fast followers are trying to copy them as fast as they possibly can. Um, but they hopefully have enough brand differentiation or whatever they need to keep their customers with them. That's a great example yeah. of like they're getting squeezed in the middle and right. you've got to build a really meaningful brand that the copycats and you'll see, we saw with method, like, and we're seeing it right now with Ollie, like you'll just get a plethora of brands that show up and come through and then majority of them will die away. Right. Yeah. Just survive, survive long enough to win. And consumers will give you permission to copy products. They will not give you permission to copy brands. Like no. Anybody can come out with an SUV, but only one brand can, no one can behave like Jeep. Yeah. Um, what are, so, okay, these are a series of successes and it seems like, well, Welly will follow that pattern. Um, just give it time. What, what are some things you're struggling with right now? What, what are the things that are keeping you up at night? Uh, you're probably not staying up at night because you have the Ollie <laughs> chewables that'll help you sleep. But I think, what are the things you're thinking about right now where you're, sort of facing challenges or where have you faced real challenges in the past? God, time is the biggest one. The, uh, I think the biggest challenge is again, the shift to e-commerce, particularly working with Amazon. Um, but the whole shift to e-commerce and D2C and how do you do it profitably is definitely a continuing growing theme. Do you sell Welly online? We do. Okay. Um, we are, um, you know, it's it's really with some of these categories, it's really hard to build a, a to come up with a compelling reason of why is somebody gonna come to Ollie.com versus one click on Amazon right. or on our site. Um, and then the cost of doing business with a lot of these e commerce retailers, like it's a it's a real challenge. There's a certain efficiency to shipping pallets of product to a central warehouse. Right. Um, the brick and mortar system is incredibly efficient in this country. Right. Huge market versus shipping things individually to everybody's door. It's um, it's not an easy way to make money right now. And is your is your deal with Target exclusive for Welly? Uh, so they are our lunch partner, so they have okay. exclusivity on the lunch. Okay. And it really gives us an opportunity to, it's, it's hard to service more than one customer at lunch. Especially a customer that size. And we know we're not smart enough to get everything right. right. So we're going to need a little bit of space then to uh, take advantage of the learning and then optimize. I always call, I never call it launch. I always say it's launch and learn. And year one's never about winning. Year one's really about learning how to win. And what are some high level, I'm sure you get asked this all the time, but what are some sort of, when, when someone comes to you and they say, Hey, I'm starting a CPG brand. What are, what's one or two sort of tidbits of advice that you give them? The biggest is just breaking it down to bite-sized little steps. Like it's so overwhelming. Again, going back to the head games you play with yourself, of uh, and the insecurity of like, Oh my God, I'm sitting here. I'm going to climb that mountain. 
And so I just always help people think it through in bite-sized little steps. Like step one is like, you don't have to start a business. You just got to figure out, do I have a good idea? And there's lots of ways to do that very efficiently. And then once you figure out like, okay, I do have a good idea, then just go test that idea in the marketplace. And then once you've done that, you know, before you know it, you've built a business. But just break down to clear milestones. What are you trying to achieve? How much capital do you need to prove it? And um, work your way up that way. And that's, that's definitely the model we followed with all three businesses. Yeah, it seems so simple and clear cut, put it that way. <laughs> and so many companies, one thing that you, you bring up a great point because so many, I work in venture capital and so many companies that pitch us are in stealth mode. And stealth mode is hurting your business. You need feedback. Both sure. of your companies started with feedback, right? You talked to friends, you told friends immediately, would you use this? Would you buy this? What if it looked like this? What if you did this? Without all of those various sort of feedback channels or loops, you're starting something a little blinder than you were before. That's a great point. I have so many entrepreneurs who want advice and they want me to sign an NDA. And there's, I was like, right. oh. Oh, yeah. It's like ideas are easy. Right. Execution is hard. If you share your idea with somebody and they go out, execute you, look inward. Right. <laughs> like- yeah. You had opportunity after opportunity after opportunity. Yeah. Maybe you have to sort of be in the process of doing something with it, but I think, or at least have that idea to do something with it. Um, but you know, people are going to be respectful of your ideas for the most part, and you should probably be generous with them and trust people. That's the other, that's a whole different issue, but I feel like people should just be more trusting. The chances of you failing because somebody heard your idea and out executed you versus your own self-inflicted mistakes you're going to make along the way are like, so you're spot on. The more I always encourage people share it, get feedback, keep learning, keep optimizing. And um, if it's that easy to steal your idea, then it's probably not that great of an idea. And uh, at the end, I like to do a couple sort of fun, more fun questions. Um, what is something on your bucket list that you haven't done? Work or professional? Uh, non-professional. Non-professional. It could be. It could be either. No, no, no. I don't want to. I, I don't <laughs> care about your professional goals. Give it something that you want to do personally or with family or you know, climb Everest or you know. Um, I don't know. We've had all sorts of examples. Well, I got uh, three young kids, so definitely my biggest bucket list right now is like trying, Keep to, them alive. trying to put three amazing people into this world. That's good. Um, which is always an ongoing challenge of parenting. Um, so parenting aside, uh, you know, I have a real passion for water. So um, I've got a number of uh, like the Transpac Regatta to Hawaii is a bucket list item, but spending more time at the um, on the ocean. Is that a is sailing a, race? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's a race from California to Hawaii. Oh, wow. Uh, but I, I love sailing and water and kiteboarding. Do you and, sail around here? I do, yeah. Great. I do some racing. Um, if you could choose anyone in the world to represent Ollie, I guess I'll say Ollie if that's still what you're working on day to day. You you know, if someone comes, gives you a 60-second Super Bowl ad, who do you want in that ad and why? Ellen. Really? Yeah. Have you ever made any headway with her? We did a, um, with Mom's Planning, her and Kristen Bell. Yeah, we did a partnership uh, with them. But uh, we'd love to do more. Like, I just love her vibe. Um, I think she's such a, does a great job of being very realistic, but also optimist. And I love the fact that she's still not sure why she's so successful. Like, that yeah, humbleness. she does. She's yeah. like, I don't get that. She's like, I don't get the appeal. Yeah, her comedians and cars <laughs> was great. She, yeah, she literally so says good. that. Yeah, she's yeah. Like, I was like, oh my God, you're amazing. Does she work with any brand? Does she do any ads right now? I don't know. I'm trying to think. I'm sure I've seen her in something. I know she's a big watch person also. I'm oh, you to know think what? We did try to buy more 
promotion of the show, but I can't, I can't remember what network she's with, but they require you to buy so much other media in right. order to, to get, get access, content. and it just wasn't affordable for right. us. Someday. Someday. You're big, yeah, amazing. Now you're big, I mean, yeah, it's going to happen. That's really... Ellen, if you're listening. And I'm told I often dress like her. Um, I see the vibe. Yeah. A little bit of an <laughs> Ellen vibe. Um, well, Eric, I hugely appreciate the time. Thank you so much. Thanks for welcoming me into your office, which for those of you who don't know, the Presidio is a giant park in San Francisco, and there are uh, sort of a series of army barracks around it, and a lot of them have been converted into offices. This is one of them, and it's just a perfect sort of space, and it's called Camp Ollie, which is sort of perfectly encapsulating of, of the brand. Um, it's too bad you're moving, but this is pretty awesome. Now we have awesome a new Camp office. Ollie. We're moving into the original Ghirardelli Chocolate Factory oh, from cool. 1865 oh. at uh, 415 Jackson. So come visit us in San Francisco. Some, but, uh, some Wonka decoration over there. Very. It's uh, it's going to stay Camp Ollie, but we almost did Camp or we almost did Ollie Factory. Um, but yeah, it's a really special, special space that we're renovating right now. And we're excited to move in in a few weeks. Well, I look forward to it. Thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate the time and good luck with everything. Thanks for having me. All right. Thank you everyone for listening. Uh, please rate and review. Um, yeah. In the meantime, enjoy your week and, uh, hope you enjoyed the episode. Thanks. <laughs>